following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. How many of you here uh, grew up in the church? Ch- a Christian school, whatever it may be. Okay, okay, a few of us. Okay, great. So um, many of the things I'm going to mention to you today, you're going to laugh at. You're going to understand these examples. If you didn't grow up in the church, then just bear with us for a moment because some of the things I'm going to say to you, you're going to go, that is really weird. Um, and I'm just going to give you some things. I, I grew up in the church. My first time to ever visit a church, I was seven years old. I can remember it vividly. I was saved at nine years old. And from that point on, I just began the process of growing up in the church. And for years, if you know much about Christians, you're going to understand that there are varying convictions and ideas on about a thousand different things or more. And for years, Christianity, especially in the U.S., has been known for do's and don'ts. You can do these things, can't do these things. And sometimes Christians are viewed like Debbie Downers walking into a party. No fun Christianity. I mean, it's like you're on the lookout for people that are having fun. And if they're Christians, shame on them, right? I mean, something is going wrong. The, the area I grew up in, in the deep south, the ideas ran like this. No dancing, no alcohol, no playing cards, especially ones that had a had a face card to them because the face cards were demonic, especially the ones with the eyes. And if you play those in your home, you're inviting Satan to come into your home and do bad things in your home. So you could play Rook. You couldn't play face cards. Only Christian music. Petra was okay, but Striper was satanic. Anybody remember Striper? Right? Okay, great. Burn everything that was secular. I lost some really good, this tells you my age, eight track tapes. During those times. I mean, it just, oh man. Certain logos were out. Unless you made them Christianese, you know, Christian lingo. Right? Remember Gold's Gym, the big fitness center nationwide? You couldn't wear that shirt, but if you had a shirt that said God's Gym on it, you're good. Right? And then the worst one of all, this is the worst one I ever came across, Budweiser slogan, for all you do, this Bud's for you. And some Christian decided to change it, for all you do, His blood's for you. I mean, how bad can it get? Right? I mean, if you wore the T-shirt, I'm not judging you, maybe a little bit, but, right? I mean, so weird. I mean, just like, what? But in, in all honesty, with all this ambiguity and weirdness came a question for me and probably for you is, what, what can Christians do? I mean, what is, what is the right way to live? Was, was entertainment off limits? I mean, so, so do you choose Cheers or do you choose Touched by an Angel? Remember those days, right? Or Top Gun or Facing the Giants, right? I mean, we got these. Was all music off limits that was not sung by a Christian? And an odd one in the world I grew up in was if you ate white bread, something was wrong with you. Right? Yeah, I know. People go, what? Yeah, you know, it sticks to your gut and makes you sick and it's sinful and gross. Really? Surely temples were okay, but other things weren't, right? I mean, what about going to a state university? I mean, you see my point. I mean, the confusion was everywhere. So many questions, so little direction. And so are Christians really to be sticking the muds everywhere we go and the party police? 
Or here's a question. Does the Bible offer us a completely different perspective on how we live life? So if you're new with us, you walked in the door today and you got a, you got a bulletin in your hand that walked in. On the backside of that bulletin is, is an outline. And here's the big idea that I want us to hit on today. Christians define themselves by their relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Christians want to glorify God in all things by considering others' interest above our own. I'll say it again. Christians define themselves by their relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Christians want to glorify God in all things by considering others' interest above our own. Now, the reason this is important, that we learn this, is so that we can clearly present to the world around us what Jesus Christ is really all about. And listen, it is, it's so critical right now, especially because we need to show people that being a Christian is so much better than the political party that you affiliate with. That it's not simply by just living by a strict moral code, even though you should, but it's about identifying yourself, defining yourself by your relationship with God through Jesus and living for God's glory as you seek the benefit and the good of other people around you. That's what we're going to understand this morning. So let's stand together. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 11, 1, and then we'll pray while we're standing. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. <clears throat> but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, <clears throat> not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are freshly aware today of the holiness and majesty of God. We've sung about it. We've rejoiced in it. But we're also freshly aware that, that we as Christians have a tendency to identify ourselves in a lot of ways that your word is not explicitly clear about. Help us this morning to see the wonder and the beauty of Christ and then identify ourselves in following his pattern. So, Father, open the eyes of our hearts so we might see and know Jesus. and bless the preaching of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, the church in Corinth was a divided place. And since chapter 8 
Paul has been dealing with an issue that separated them, and it had to do with what we'll call um, we'll call Christian liberty or Christian freedom. And the question really was phrased: Is a Christian free to eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol, either buying it in the meat market or going to the local temple to eat that meat? And some thought that it was okay. Some thought it wasn't okay. And throughout chapters 8 through 10, Paul has shown us that it was okay for Christians to eat meat from the marketplace, but it's not okay to fight about it or force others, force your freedoms or convictions on other people. But he's also shown us that, listen, you don't go to a temple that's sacrificing to a false god because your Savior Jesus has already come for you. He's the final sacrifice. That would be idolatrous to go and engage in those type of activities. So Paul's point was clear. Christians could eat meat sacrificed to an idol, but however, all Christians must refrain from idolatry. Now this debate in verse, chapters 8 through 10, and really in, in Romans 14 and 15, is really about areas in God's Word that are not explicitly forbidden, nor are they clear. In those situations, the question really arises, what should a Christian do? What should a Christian not do? Can a Christian listen to or watch non-Christian entertainment? Can a Christian wear certain brands of clothing, play sports, or wear certain types of clothing? What about all types of meat? Can we eat everything, or is pork and shellfish limited or restricted? Can a Christian drink alcohol? What about caffeine? Boy, we'd had trouble if that's the case, right? And what exactly is gluttony, especially around Thanksgiving? Can a Christian get a tattoo, have more than two piercings? And what about this one? What about drums in the church? And you go, drums in the church? Absolutely. If you want to get into a fight, start talking about drums in the church. We've had people literally say, because we had drums in the church, we invited demonic forces into the building. Really? What about a national flag in the church? Some go, absolutely, I fought in the military, it should be there. And then others say, wait a minute, it's never given to us in Scripture. What about this? Can, can women have short hair? What about guys having long hair? Do all women really need to wear skirts and guys wear suits? Now again, if you haven't heard these things before, you're going, what in the world are you people arguing about? Which was the question I wrestled out in my own heart through the years? We make issues in all these areas. You'll notice the scripture is not explicitly clear about them, and conscience must guide. It must lead us. So in our, in our text this morning, Paul's going to put an end to this discussion. And he's going to give us a few things. He's going to give us an overriding principle. He's going to give us two case studies. Well, we can see how does this get worked out? And then lastly, he's going to show us the purpose. Why do we do it the way Paul has described and God has described in the scripture? So let's look at the overriding principle found in verse 23. Does everybody know the problem I'm talking about? You can feel it, right? I mean, maybe you can't. If you can't, then you haven't been around long enough. People arguing over things that are not clear in scripture. Okay, is that clear? Okay, good. Dave, is that clear? Okay, good. Everybody's staring at me kind of funny, so maybe it's just I'm getting self-conscious, you know? Okay, all right, verse 23. Verse 23, Paul tells us that there are more things we're allowed to do than things we're not allowed to do. Notice what he says. All things are lawful, and he says it how many times? Twice. 
And notice he says, all things. Meaning that in areas where God's word is unclear or has not clearly forbidden, we as Christians are free to do them. But verses 23 and 24, he says there's a wide guardrail. You're, you're free to do these things, but notice the guardrails. Not all things are helpful. Not all things build up. And verse 24 summarizes it. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So the principle goes like this. As a Christian, in areas that God's word is not explicitly clear, you have freedom. But your freedom is not to be used for your benefit. It's to be used for others' benefit. It's to serve other people. Now, the question would be, why? Why is this principle even given to us in Scripture? Why does it even matter, especially for us who are red-blooded Americans? Well, here's the deal. If you claim Jesus as your Savior, this means that you understand, you know that Jesus considered your interest above his own. And when you believe in Jesus, he flips the trajectory of your life upside down from serving yourself to serving other people. Therefore, everything you do or everything you should do is to be with this perspective, upward toward God and outward toward others, not just for your benefit. So when it comes to your freedoms, you're not defined by your freedoms or the number of things you can do or the things you can't do. You're defined by one thing, your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that compels you then to live life in a manner and a pattern with which he did so which is considering other people's interest above your own. Now, just so you can know, this isn't just in 1 Corinthians 10. Look on the screen as two passages come up that relay this idea as well. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See the, the flip in trajectory, no longer living for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised. Or Philippians chapter 2, very famous text of scripture, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look out to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Verse 5, which Dave Rubel quoted later in our, earlier in our first service, says, have this attitude in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus has won our hearts, love for others must win the day. Because Jesus has won our hearts, love for others must win the day. That's the principle. As Christians in areas where God's word is not explicitly clear, you have freedom. But your freedom is to be used for the good of other people. That's the principle. Now let's look at the two case studies. And you're going to notice this. What Paul does here is fascinating. He says, okay, you're free to eat. All things are lawful. But not everything builds up. So let me give you two scenarios and have you think them through. Okay, that's what he does. I like how he does it. It's very helpful. And it's found in verses 25 through the beginning of verse 9. And the first one is verse 29. Here's The first one is verse 25 and 26. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So the first scenario is pretty easy, right? So Jesse in the second row here, Jesse's a butcher down at Sherm's. 
Okay? If you go down to Sherm's and you're going to buy meat from Jesse, you don't walk up and say, what Paul's saying is, don't walk up and do like the Colombo thing. Where did this come from, Jesse? Give me all the details of where this meat came from. Was this up at the local temple? Did anybody sacrifice this? How? You don't have to do that. He says, go to the meat market, buy it, take it home, and eat it. That's really good news, especially if you like meat. Okay? But notice the reasoning. Notice the reasoning. He says, the Lord provided it, and you should give thank, be thankful for it. In other words, behind every piece of meat, behind every food and every drink, the Christian has the ability to do something nobody else in the world can do. We see behind that food and drink, and we see the hand of Almighty God providing it to us. Therefore, we give thanks. So as a Christian, you can do this. Why? Because the Lord has won your heart and you see behind everything that God has provided it. God is the one who's given it to you. So first scenario, he would say to you, go to the meat market, buy some meat. Enjoy. Bon appetit. Worship God as you eat. Celebrate God as you eat. Celebrate the goodness of God as you eat because God has provided for you. But there's a second scenario. Verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Again, really simple. <clears throat> a non-Christian invites you to dinner and you want to go, go. Have a good time. Eat whatever they put before you. Don't ask questions about it. Don't do an investigation about where this thing came from. Don't do it. Just eat. Now, I had to prepare myself for this when I went to the Philippines and other foreign countries because you eat what is in front of you. And they told me that they could feed me balut, which is a, you know, a raw egg that's been fermented in the ground for a long time. And they have longer periods of time that they do that. And you suck the thing out of the egg. It's nasty. Now, I've got an iron gut, but I went in there thinking, do not investigate. Just eat whatever is before you. And as I went to eat, luckily they never gave me balut. They laughed about it. We're going to give you some balut, Pastor. And I was like, no, please don't. You know, you guys can do that. <laughs> right? Now, with a, don't, don't worry. So it's, it's fairly simple. Non-Christian invites you. Go eat. Whatever they put before you, eat it. Don't investigate it. Don't spend your time worrying about it. Why? It's a great opportunity to be a friend, share the gospel, and enjoy their hospitality. And you're aware, right, what their hospitality reveals to you? It reveals they've been made in the image of God. Not that they're a Christian. Because God, of all people, is the most hospitable being in the universe. And it gives you an opportunity to share the gospel with your friend because you have been there. And you just eat the meat that's provided. Eat, talk, enjoy, don't worry about it. However, the second scenario has a caveat. And look at verses 28 and 29. This is where you've got to put your thinking caps on. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience. I mean his. Now, what's fascinating is when you're looking at the context of 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, this someone seems to be another Christian who has been invited to the same dinner party as you. And they did not get the memo that Paul just laid out here. 
And you're at this party and this friend is in making a salad with the host and the host begins to talk about, we can't wait to give you this meat. We have, we went down to the, and we got it at the local temple. It was offered to an idol and it's this beautiful steak. We can't wait to lay it on the table for you. And this Christian friend has a different conviction than you. They, they believe eating meat sacrificed to an idol that was bought at the temple is idolatrous worship. So they come out of making the salad with the host. They walk over next to you and they're like, I don't know what to do. This meat's been sacrificed to an idol. I don't feel like I can eat it. What do you do as a Christian in that moment? I tell you what most of us would do. We'd say, dude, suck it up. Don't embarrass us. We're here to represent Jesus. And you'll get the generational terms. Don't be a fuddy-duddy, a square, or a dork. Don't be any of those things. That's what we normally do. What does Paul say? Paul says, for their conscience, we don't eat the meat. Instead, we prefer and defer to our Christian friend. Now, before we move on here, let's just take a moment here for a second. Paul is not implying that this Christian who has these convictions is searching and looking for opportunities to police your convictions. This person is a Christian who believes they couldn't eat meat sacrificed to an idol because it would be sinful for them. They're just, they, they had no idea. They didn't think anything about it. They show up and this host drops this bomb on them right before, and they're surprised, and they're conflicted, and the Bible would call them the weaker brother or sister. And they come to you, the stronger brother or sister, and says, what do I do? This isn't somebody walking around with a scowl on their face, looking for Christians to pounce on and pour water on every everybody who's a Christian that's having a good time. That's not what this is about. So if you're doing that, Stop. We're going to call that out, right? Don't do that. This is simply somebody who's been shocked. They're they're amazed. So what's Paul showing us here? Paul is showing us how biblical love is lived out in a compromised, sinful, conflicted world and how we as Christians can navigate through very sticky issues that might arise between us. Now, why? Why is Paul asking us to do this? Why is God telling us, give up a liberty for the sake of another person's conscience? I mean, this is critical, and it's really important we understand this, because in the American Christian culture, it is currently in vogue to ignore all other Christians' perspective on anything and ignore their conscience and ignore their convictions and not have these kind of dialogues and give way and prefer to the non-Christian. After all, we're trying to win them to Christ. We don't want to do anything to offend them. At least that's what our Christian culture says. My question is, what does the Bible say? How does the Bible determine this? We even do this in the Sunday gatherings and churches. Our attention is on the seeker or the non-believer in the room rather than on the believer to give them God's word to equip them to go do works of ministry in the world. And you can see it everywhere. It's a ministry philosophy everywhere. Prefer the non-Christian, don't prefer the Christian. But what does God's word say about this? We see it here in 1 Corinthians 10. Well, Galatians 6 makes it explicitly clear. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And notice the especially phrase. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. In other words, 
Be, be good to everybody, but you better make sure you're being good to the people of the faith. Or Jesus' own words. By this, all will know that you're my disciples. And notice what he said. If you have love for one another. He didn't just say love for the world, love for those outside. No, he said love for one another, speaking of his disciples. So when we prefer a Christian brother or sister to the degree that we sacrifice eating meat or exercising any liberty, here's what you're doing. You're showing the non-Christian world how much love you have for Jesus and Jesus' people. And this shows the world that you are indeed the followers of Christ. And in doing so, it is a way that God is using you to evangelize people around you. John MacArthur put it this way. The way to win people, Jesus said, is to love each other. You love each other and the world's going to know where we're his disciples. So if you have to choose between offending a Christian and offending a non-Christian, offend a non-Christian. And make sure you maintain the unity of the love of the body of Jesus Christ because that's the greatest testimony that we have in the world. Now, friends, this is what the gospel does to you. When you believe in Christ as your Savior, you are placed into a family and your mindset of that family drastically changes. Does it mean that the church does it perfectly and righteously? No, absolutely not. But there's something that goes off in our hearts that says this, we are changed to prefer one another, to defer to one another, and serve one another. Even in some of the most challenging cultural moments around. In other words, this is what Jesus did for us. And therefore, we gladly do it for one another. Now, just a pause here. This is a hallmark of our church. I'm just going to say this clearly. We are a church that prefers each other. We defer to one another. We love each other. We're willing to give up life for each other. We're willing to serve and give away our goods for one another. When you see Acts chapter 2 demonstrated about what the gospel's happening, you see those very same descriptors in our church. So this isn't a, um, you know, like a rebuke. No, this is a reminder, as Paul would say later to the Thessalonians, let's abound in this good work more and more and more and more. Why? Because it honors God, it advances the gospel, and it lets the world know the power of the gospel is so real, those people give up and sacrifice for one another. That's remarkable news. Now, these two case studies we've just seen Show us that we're free to live in Christian liberty and enjoy it. We're free to enjoy all things that the Lord has given us and thank God that we can enjoy what he's given us. When we're invited to a party with a non-Christian friend, we go, represent Jesus and our good friends. But we defer and we serve our Christian brothers and sisters so much that we're willing to sacrifice a liberty and a right for them because, again, Jesus has won our hearts Love for others must win the day. Now, let's look at the reason for this. Why? What's the purpose behind Paul's instruction? And you're going to notice this in Paul's lead-in. Paul gives two questions. Now, in order to understand this, you've got to understand Paul's way of writing. What Paul loves to do often is Paul will give a challenging doctrine, and then he'll give some questions that he thinks others will be thinking. So let me give me an example of that. 
Romans chapter 5, Paul makes his statement. Where sin abounds, grace does abound all the more. He begins chapter 6 with this question, which you probably have. So, does that mean I should keep on sinning so I can get more grace? See, that's a question Paul knows people are asking. Well, Paul knows we're asking the same question. Here, uh, okay, wait a minute now, Paul. You're telling me that if I go to a party with a non-Christian friend and my Christian friend shows up and they get surprised and they're shocked and they don't know what to do, I'm to support them in their convictions even though I don't have the same convictions? Why is it if I'm free to eat this meat, drink that drink, dance that dance, watch that show, etc., that I don't do that because a strict Christian says they can't do that? And that's what he does in verses 29 and 30. He gives these two questions to just lay out, I know what you're asking. I know what you're wondering. I know what you're pondering. And his answer to those questions is maybe one of the most famous verses in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So what Paul does in answering the questions, you may wonder, why would I even do this? Why should I ever give up a right for somebody else's not right? That doesn't make sense. I'm free to do whatever I want to do. And Paul says, well, so then, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. Whatever you do. And what Paul does is he overlays the entire purpose of our lives right in the middle of a text on eating and drinking. And here's what I mean. If the Bible says, as we know it does, that all believers are made for the glory of God, then it would make sense that when we eat and we drink, we do it for the glory of God. If all of our life is to be for the glory of God and to the glory of God, then the minor things like eating and drinking just kind of, that fits right into the, I mean, it's easy to do. That's, that's yeah, that makes sense. So the big question then would be, then how do we eat and drink for the glory of God? You see what Paul's doing? How do we do that? Well, as you've heard me say thousands of times in this pulpit, when you see a text, you better look at that text in its context and not just pull it out of its context. So what is the context of this verse? There's two things in the context. One part is it's about freely and thankfully and joyfully eating and drinking, doing all things that are not forbidden by God and recognizing that God has given them to us. So we can worship God and thank God while we eat steak. Or if your preference is tofu, you can worship God while doing that. You can dance like nobody is watching because you know that God gave you the gift of music. You can receive that game as a gift from God and play hard, play to win with all your might. You, you can do all those things for the good of other people. So that means you can share your cheesecake with a friend without stabbing them when they try to get something that you didn't offer them, right? You can teach others that game or how to dance or how to do certain things. You can cheer hard at that game and use your passions and your gifts that God gave you to serve other people. That's one thing the text is about. It's thankfully, joyfully, gladly living life freely. But it's also about something else. It's about being willing 
to lay down anything for the sake of a weaker brother or sister's conscience and for the sake of showing other people the power of the risen Christ. When we live freely with gratitude to God for the benefit of others, we are glorifying God. So you got you to put that verse right in its context and don't take it out. So let's, let's put this in real time. Okay? We don't have a problem with meat sacrifice to idols. So let me just pick out an issue that potentially happens every now and then to you. <clears throat> Imagine with me that you've been invited to a party at a non-Christian friend's house. They're going to have alcohol there, and you feel that you're free to drink alcohol with moderation, and when you do drink alcohol, you thank God for it because you believe it's a gift from God. As you arrive, you see another Christian friend who is there, and you begin to carry on conversation about he and his wife, and as you guys begin to talk, you suddenly realize this guy and his wife believes it is sinful for Christians to drink alcohol, and you don't know how this is going to play out. And right when he's closing his mouth about drinking alcohol, your non-Christian friend pops a top off a cold one and hands it to you and says, hey, here you go, man. What do you do? According to Paul, in that text, and according to this text, in that moment, you are to refrain. You are to say, hey, thanks, but no thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for offering. You don't have to elaborate. You don't got to go, if this guy wasn't here, I'd be having a beer with you. You don't have to do any of that stuff, right? You don't have to do, and I know what you're thinking, right? I'd say great minds think alike, but other way, you know, okay, right? You, you can just graciously decline. That's the gist of it. That's the text. And here's the beauty. In doing that, Paul says, that glorifies God. Now, next week, as a teaser, we're going to draw this out farther because I want to talk about the conversations we should be having before we ever get to that moment so that you're not shocked when it happens. I'll give you personal examples of moments when I've invited friends to my home, invited all sorts of guys to bring stuff as they came along, found out one brother or sister was coming that did not feel like I did about certain things, and I called everybody and said, hey, man, let's refrain for the night. Um, we got a brother coming. And I gave him names. He said, let's just process this out. Every guy said, hey, no problem, man. Let's go have a good time. Because to us, the issue, and we had non-Christian friends coming, the issue was not going to celebrate our freedom. The issue was loving others because Christ has loved us. So next week, we're going to tease it out. Now, the question you're probably asking is, What's the end game of this? How far does this go? What does God, what, what is God doing in this? Well, notice with me the end of the chapter. Verses 32 through chapter 11, verse 1. I would just summarize it like this. When we glorify God, we're seeking to encourage Christians and evangelize non-Christians with our life and with our lips. Or another way to say it is, when we live life with grateful freedom toward God, and we're willing to serve other people, we're demonstrating and declaring the power of Jesus in us. And I would add, as Paul said in chapter 11, verse 1, very last verse, that is the pattern of Jesus and Paul before us. And A.C. Thistleton nails this in this quote. True, authentic Christian and apostolic witness is to point to Christ 
not only through words, but also through life and lifestyle. Christ is the model or paradigm case of living and dying for others. Example, verse 24, it is understandable and sometimes wise that often Christians hesitate to rush in with words about Christ, example, in their workplace, until they have been able to establish enough of their lifestyle and lived out values through how they act and relate to others day by day. Catch the last verse. To take Christ as my pattern involves the whole of life. It is so important we see this because this text challenges us at the core. It gets right down to what we're living for and who we're living for. Listen, I just want to ask you, are you living life simply to get all you can out of this life for your benefit? Or are you living this life for the glory of God and for the benefit of other people? Two, two, two ways to think about this. If it's simply to get all you can out of life for you, listen, you're missing out on why you were ever created in the first place. And you will ultimately be met with frustration, despair, and anger because you can never get enough to satisfy you. It's like Gollum with the ring falling into Mount Doom to your death. But listen, if we live for the glory of God, upward and outward for the benefit of other people, here's what happens. We actually get more out of life. Living for the glory of God, for the encouragement of Christians, for the evangelizing of non-Christians shows us how much we need the gospel and how much it transforms our hearts. Friends, just go back as an example to 2020 and reread many of the Christian friends that you have, read all their social media feeds about all the freedoms and stuff they're losing and how they're fighting against that and fighting against this, all these things. We don't take our liberties and just hand them away for nothing. And yet Paul is saying, in a moment, it may require you to give up your freedom for the sake of a Christian brother or sister. You want to talk about needing the gospel. This text shows us the gospel is so powerful that it can transform us to no longer live for our glory, but for God's, and to no longer live just for our benefit, but to live for somebody else's benefit. And in that, it advances the gospel and the glory of Christ everywhere. The gospel frees you from the tyranny of you. So that you are free to serve other people for their eternal good and you're willing to give up anything to serve them. This means entertainment choices, sports, arts, political involvement, uh, food and drink choices. All of these things must be seen through this lens. We're free to do them unless it doesn't benefit others. Because Jesus has won our hearts Love must win the day. Let's pray. Now, as we pray this morning, I'm sure that the Lord, he's so kind. He's he's your pastor if you're a Christian, and he is revealing to you areas that you have. Maybe they become idolatrous to you. A brother in the early service said that his ideas 
about freedoms, his ideas about politics. He cannot define them biblically, yet he clings to them as if they are gospel truth. And he revealed, God revealed this morning how idolatrous that is to him. Maybe this morning, it's just simply that you realize I've been living for myself. So, Father, we turn our attention to you this morning. You are the great shepherd of your people. Jesus, you're the chief shepherd, and you you can take your word and apply it broadly to your people's lives, and we ask you to do so. And so, Father, where we've sinned against you, we repent. We ask you to forgive us. Where we have where we have selfishly lived life for our benefit without any consideration of others, we ask you to forgive us. And we pray that you would transform us to live differently. Help biblical love to capture our hearts because Jesus has won us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.